You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the Augment, the AUKUS Young Arthroplasty Group podcast. My name is Jesse Wolfsat, academic orthopedic surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital and the University of Toronto. And my name is Dr. Peter Golds. I'm a private practice surgeon in Denver, Colorado at Panorama Orthopedics and Spine. We are really honored today to be joined by two guests who have had some really great experiences in terms of coaching and being mentors and being leaders. And uh, we're just excited to kind of dive in on a topic that might be unfamiliar to a lot of you and something that is definitely really valuable and could be a great tool for our listeners. So our first guest is Linda Soilman. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery and Medical Education at Northwestern University. She specializes in hip and knee replacements and serves as the Associate Dean for the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. She earned an undergraduate degree in psychology and neurobiology from the University of Maryland and graduated from the Howard University College of Medicine. Linda did her residency at Northwestern University, where she was the first Black woman to graduate from her program. And during her time there, she developed interest for advocacy through leadership research and diversity and inclusion in medical education. She completed a joint replacement fellowship at Rush and returned to Northwestern, where she did a two-year health policy fellowship with AUKUS. Her research interests are in disparities and access, and outcomes for hip and knee replacements and implicit bias in our residency and selection process. Thanks for having me. So it's my pleasure to welcome Louis-Bet Adelandi, a fellowship-trained orthoplasty surgeon at SSM Medical Group in St. Louis, Missouri. In addition to her clinical practice, she's a speaker and a physician coach with expertise in career development, inclusion, and belonging. She coaches other physicians who want to elevate their careers, particularly women, minorities, and those early in practice. She is passionate about helping others reach their maximum potential and is also the co-chair of the AUKUS Diversity and Advisory Board. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So we thought we'd probably just jump right in on the main topic today, which is really around surgeon coaching and executive and leadership coaching. Dr. Adelani, I was wondering if you don't mind giving us a brief description of what surgeon coaching is. So coaching, I like to define as a guided process for self-reflection through a neutral party. So a coach is usually someone that is not one of your mentors, not necessarily someone you know, that helps you work through your own thought process and set your own goals in a neutral way. What brought you to surgeon coaching and how did you start? How did you hear about it and what grabbed your attention and you thought it'd be a good thing for you? So I started off being coached. I was in my second or maybe third year of practice and just felt kind of lost in terms of, you know, I was chasing all of these goals, but I wasn't really sure they were mine. And I was trying to figure out what am I trying to do? And so I worked with a coach for a few years, actually, that was really helpful and helped me get clarity on what my values were, but also what I really wanted to do and where I really wanted to go next. And because of that positive experience, I decided to go train to be a coach. And now I coach other surgeons on the same things. 
That's really great. Linda, how did you get involved with coaching and what attracted you to doing it? How'd you hear about it and uh, how's it been helpful? Yeah. So for me, I would say I'm the recipient of great coaching. When I graduated fellowship, you know, people give you a lot of advice. How do you start a practice? How do you become a researcher? How to get involved with leadership? But everyone sort of has their own path. What I realized is, you know, being a black woman in arthroplasty was a different path that I didn't really have a clear perspective on how to really trail that path forward because my conflicts and interactions with patients and building relationships are going to look a little bit different than the majority. And so starting practice, you know, I, I didn't look for any coaching. I just sort of took everybody's advice, took everybody's mentorship and sponsorship. To me, what propelled me into coaching was due to a major life event. I finished my first year of practice I was pregnant at the time and I delivered three months early. So my daughter was in the NICU for three months and I sort of came back really after maternity leave an extended NICU stay. So really six months from really not being active and trying to figure out how do I basically restart in an academic practice? How do I build a patient census again? How do I become a leader in orthopedics? All these goals that I had in mind, but had taken a significant pause from. And so that's what sort of started me into getting coached. And it was probably the best decision I've ever made for my career. How did the two of you come in contact with your first coaches? Was it something you just Googled? Was it other colleagues that had had coaches and they put you in touch with them? Yeah, mine was similar. I had a mentor of mine give me a few names. But finding a coach, what are the characteristics you sort of look for as people who first time looking into a coach, the one thing I wanted was some sort of shared perspective or understanding. So the coach I found is specifically for black women in academics, not like orthopedics, or it could be really any academic sort of endeavor, because there's a different time frame. There's a different areas of promotion, there's different conflicts that you deal with on a day, day basis being in academics rather than a private practice, or if you're a researcher. Right. And so I tried to find things that was kind of the, the academic coach's niche to feel like I was going to be understood and I didn't have to explain certain things, but still could have that neutral party. I think that's really important. I had the same. I had a Black female that was most important for me. It was actually equally important for me that they not be a physician because I, I needed a broader worldview and not one that was focused on that. But I think that's something that people should think about when they start thinking about coaching. Think about what are the questions that you have that you're trying to answer and what is the perspective that you would like to seek and what are the biases that you want to avoid? Because all of us, including coaches, have some certain lens that we look through, even though we try not to. So I think thinking about that ahead of time and kind of getting an idea of what are the things that are most important to you. Does that person have a, a niche, as Linda was just talking about, et cetera, will help you kind of narrow down that search and figure out what to look for in a coach. One thing that just seems like such an obvious distinction now that we're talking about it is you have mentors and then you have coaches. So what do you think is the the biggest difference? We have a really good mentor. Like, why do I need a coach on top of that? What do you think that difference makes it important? So mentors and coaches do different things. In my opinion, a mentor gives you advice through his or her perspective on what they think you should do. A coach 
tries to pull out of you your own perspective. We actually have a lot of the answers within us already, and a coach really is good at pushing you to draw that out of you, but it's done in a way that is driven by your own perspective and not the perspective of someone else. The second major difference is that with mentorship, there is an inherent power dynamic. Most of our mentors are attendings from training, senior partners, or otherwise people that we admire. And with that comes a natural inclination to not disappoint, which means that you can't be 100% transparent with them. I think having someone that's not in any power dynamic with you allows you to have that vulnerability that you need to really get to the heart of some of these questions. Yeah, I think Muva really highlighted just sort of the most important aspect, which is that vulnerability. I have some wonderful mentors that I would like to say wouldn't judge me for the poor decisions or the good decisions, whatever decisions I make. But in my mind, am I being 100% completely transparent in these things that I'm discussing with them? Because at the end of the day, they're still my mentor. I want them to see me in this positive light, right? And so I think really what we about highlighted is this vulnerability to say, hey, these are the X, Y, and Z issues I'm having currently with a coach. And the coach, you can be completely 100% transparent in with no repercussions or fear of anything that they would do to you. Even though most mentors would not do that, it just, it takes that out of the picture. And good coaches want you to be transparent. They want you to be vulnerable because they're not going to be able to give you the best solutions or advice without that transparency. One of the things that I found a little bit difficult in the little bit of coaching that I've done personally is what you just said there, Linda, the, the vulnerability. I find there's a lot of silence sometimes and, and the coaches looking to me to reflect and answer a lot of the questions internally. Again, like Muyibat said, a lot of it is stuff within you already. I have a hard time pulling that stuff out. And when you two started, and I guess this is a good question for Peter as well, were there any sort of factors that allowed you to be a little bit more vulnerable, empowered you to pull that stuff out and answer some of those questions? And if you were looking back, giving advice on yourself when you started down this experience of coaching and mentorship, is there anything you would tell yourself to improve and make it more useful and worthwhile in the beginning? For me, that vulnerability really came out of desperation, right? Like I needed to make a change. I knew that I needed to change something. And quite frankly, I was also paying for this service. So it would not have been beneficial to me to hold back, right? Like I'm paying for this service because I want to make a change. And paying for something is hard for many of us, even though we all make a lot of money because we feel like we're getting it for free, but you're really not. Paying for a service makes you accountable to that. And to me, it's very important that I had to pay for my coach because I felt like I've got to maximize that time I'm getting with her because it's very expensive, right? So it only served me to be vulnerable with her and it would only hurt me to hold back. Yeah. Peter, any insights from looking back? Yeah, personally, I've been working with a coach probably since the middle of residency 
and been working working with this coach for about four or five years now. And I think what Linda and Moibau were speaking to about the vulnerability piece and the things that you can't share. I mean, there was a lot of weaknesses that I had in time management skills, self-confidence that I would not have been able to talk to my mentors with or my co-residents or co-fellows with. So yeah, I, I think for me, I convinced myself that this was something that I needed. LeBron James and every professional athlete, these people have nutrition coaches, they have exercise coaches, they have recovery coaches, they have free throw coaches. I mean, they have coaches for everything. And it's for a reason is because getting that extra care for you in a neutral way is, is really helpful. So I think if you can find a reason to commit yourself to it, then you're going to make yourself better, whether it's out of desperation or just out of self-improvement. Yeah, I think we just, you just need to remember that you know, you've paid for this coach's time and it, it's really about getting the most out of it to better yourself. And that this individual who's helping you and talking to you wants you to be your best self. And the way you are your best self is by telling them who you are. And as surgeons, we have this layer, right? Because we have to be there for our colleagues. We've got to be there for our patients. We wear so many hats and there's a lot at stake. So how I thought about my coaching sessions are, this is a moment in time where I don't have to wear that hat. I don't have to be the captain of the ship. It's it, you think about yourself as like, I'm coming on a plane and I'm the passenger. I'm going to sit there and just be vulnerable. Let the coach know and be that pilot and lead me to figuring out the best solutions, the best career path. What percentage do you think you talk to your coach actually about orthopedics or is it about mostly other things? I think early on for me was more so orthopedics. I think, you know, I'm going in my sixth year of practice next year. As you get more comfortable in your practice and your partners and you've sort of been part of the routine, it becomes less and less. Honestly, most of it is about more leadership roles that I've taken on, really figuring out the balance for me. A lot of my my decisions and discussions are around, should I be doing X or Y or Z opportunity? Because I'm trying to balance time with my family. I'm trying to balance time with work, my dean's role. You know, you can't be everything. And that was probably the hardest thing for me to come and realize with a coach is like, you cannot be everything. It's not possible. And sort of how I've taken the last year in this and, and really talking to the coaches really about, I always thought finding a coach was about figuring out the balance in life. There is no balance. When I'm predominantly focused in one area, something else in my life is suffering. And I have to be okay with that portion of my life suffering in that moment of time. And that's probably where the majority of my conversations surround, at least in the last year, is if I'm going to pick X opportunity, something's got to give here. And, and what's that going to be? And what's the best way of saying no? How do I frame that conversation not to burn myself with opportunities later on? So that's where my time frame right now is managing my time. <laughs> Discussions have really been focused around. My experience was much more broad. I was really at a point, I kind of consider myself to be a multi-passionate person. So I have a lot of interest outside of medicine. And at the time I was trying to figure out what are all the things that I want to do? Medicine being one of them, but not the only thing. And how do I move forward in these other things? You know, a career in medicine is very prescriptive. They tell you what to do, you check the boxes and then you have it, right? But 
outside of medicine and entrepreneurship and things like that, it's very hard to start if you're not very intentional. The path of least resistance was for me to keep doing what I was doing. So I needed a, someone to help me with the big picture of kind of who am I? What do I value? What do I want to pursue? The word that comes to me is ruthless prioritization. You have somebody in your corner who's like helping you to ruthlessly prioritize the things that you need to do right now. And they make you feel okay. Hey, actually you can put this down for right now because X thing is, is much more important, whether that's purpose or a leadership role or something like that. Yeah. So it seems like a huge advantage to have somebody help you with that. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think the key thing about coaching is, even though we've talked a lot about talking, right. They do help you get to that action item, right? So we do spend a lot of time talking about like, well, what is it that I want to do? But once that's identified, the coach is like, okay, now what are we going to do to get to that point? And I think that's another really important aspect of good coaching is developing action plans because we can talk all day about all the permutations of any given opportunities but at the end of the day, the coach's goal is to motivate you towards action. I know there are a couple of different tools and types of executive and leadership coaching that you can do. One of them is 360 degree assessment. Was that a part of any of your experiences? And if so, what was that like? Yeah, a lot of coaches use assessment at the beginning to try to get an idea of who you are within your environment. As we said before, a coach is usually not someone you know personally, so they're trying to put together the whole picture and to do that in relatively short order. So yeah, I have experienced 360s before. They're always kind of humbling, get good feedback, sometimes surprising feedback, ultimately, hopefully helpful feedback. And the coach is pretty good at synthesizing that information to help them understand who you are and how to motivate you. Yeah, 360 I've had before when I moved up into my dean's position, because then you're managing a team and you know, my leadership style as a surgeon and managing my own team are very different than my leadership style at a dean's level where I'm managing different levels of individuals in medicine, not in medicine, and that leadership style may not translate well. And that's it already gives you some insight for me, at least on communication and that just because I may understand and have led with a certain pattern of communication that may not work for every individual on my team. And I have to understand, you know, the needs of each individual member of the team. And that's hard because it's forcing you to change yourself. You're not asking your teammate to change. And so the 360 really helped me understand how I was coming off to individuals that I may not have even realized. So it's definitely a, a very humbling experience for sure. And you talked a little bit before how you were coached and now you coach other surgeons. What's something that you find is a common thread between younger surgeons or up and coming surgeons that is something that we all should be maybe a little bit more aware of and who might be good for our listeners to know, hey, you might not be alone in you know these kind of feelings or, or issues. I think there are probably a, a few things that are pretty common. The first being the general overwhelm of starting practice, right? Like the newfound ownership you have of the patients you take care of. It's a lot different than being in training and all the new responsibilities that no one told you you would have, right? Like, so coming out of training, you expect to have cases that may be difficult. You know, you might be training residents if you're in an academic situation, 
but you don't realize like, hey, I got to deal with all of these interpersonal dynamics that I never really noticed as a resident. I didn't really realize I had to actively manage. So I think a lot of people struggle with that. The other one I think is more specific to women and minorities is that whole experience of being in that environment where you are not seen as the surgeon that you are. Most of us come through residency being selected, right? Like we feel like we belong there. Most of us do, not everybody, of course, because you were matched there, right? You feel like you were selected anyway. And then you spend all this time getting used to that system, but going into another environment where now you're not a trainee, but you're a partner, figuring out how to navigate those dynamics is something that I'm really interested in helping people do. That second point can't be brought up enough. Is there anything in particular, just as a good reminder for our listeners as allies and as co-partners and senior partners, what are things that we need to make sure to be doing for our fellow women and minority orthoplasty surgeons? I think the first is don't make any assumptions. Medicine is a very interesting place where narratives and rumors fly very frequently. And a narrative can be created about a person very quickly. And a lot of us will unknowingly be part of that process, right? Oh, I heard Dr. Adelani's meeting, right? So then everybody says, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard that too. I heard that too. No, no one actually experienced it, right? <laughs> so instead of perpetuating those assumptions, I would lead with asking a question, right? Why do you say that? Why do you think that? And then if you're feeling even more bold, become an interrupter, right? And actually interrupt those narratives. Because you'd be surprised how powerful that can be, both within the work environment, but also within that individual person. It's, it's a lot of weight that people carry and can lead to uh, burnout and things like that that are hard to recover from. So I think as, as colleagues, as spectators, we really got to be careful and be mindful of the narratives that we hear around each other and the impact it could have on that person. I think um, you brought up a very important topic, the burnout. Obviously, it's got a lot of coverage, particularly as it pertains to orthopedic surgeons, but in general in medicine. Are there any particular tools that you use? And, and obviously, this question for you, Linda, as well, and Peter, you as well. Any tools that you use to prevent burnout? Anything you've learned from your coaches? Yeah, I think this is all learning in retrospect, of course. But the most important thing to try to avoid burnout, I don't know that it can be prevented. <laughs> I think you can circumvent it at times hmm. or you know, recognize it early and intervene. But ultimately, burnout is a discrepancy between what you believe in, what your values are, and what you're actually doing. So the best way to avoid burnout is to align those things, find a place to go, a place to work that aligns with your own core values and make sure that the kind of work you're doing, the way that you're practicing aligns with who you are. Because if it doesn't, it will always catch up with you. Yeah, I think for me personally, what I realized honestly through coaching was I didn't have the ability to disconnect. I was always on. And I mean, like I'd be sitting here playing with my daughter, I'd ping an email, look at my email, reply immediately, text message, reply immediately. Like there was literally no disconnect 
where even if I woke up in the middle of the night, I'd be checking my phone and replying to things. And so what I realized from my coach is I could never turn myself off and just be at peace. And so when I get home, I may look at an email, flag it and just leave it. But after a certain time, I'm not looking at my phone, but I've tried to build in at least an hour of my day, either working out or reading or playing with my kid or doing something else that I am not connected to my phone and responding and being active. I'm just disconnected. And I didn't realize how much that played a role in just how exhausted I would be. Like I was, cause I was exhausted from the day of working, but exhausted from always being on. And that has tremendously, you know, affected my overall wellness and happiness. Yeah. I think for me, burnout feels like a lonely place. And so for me personally, the things that excite me are connecting with people. And so in my first year of practice now, my co-fellows and I have a group chat and that's pretty active. So when I start to feel kind of in that place where all these things are happening to me, it's always nice just to reconnect with other colleagues. And I think that's one advantage of a group like YAG at all the different meetings. We can all get together. People kind of go into the same stuff that we're all going through. So I just think for me, it's reconnecting with colleagues and realizing that we're not alone in some of the struggles. That's a great point. One of the things that I had a lot of trouble with in my first couple of years of practice was bringing my stress from work home and not knowing how to communicate with my wife about it. My, my wife isn't from a medical background. And for some reason, I don't know if it's a combination of the physician-patient privacy, but I just didn't like to talk about things at home or maybe I didn't know how to speak to my wife about stuff. But in the last year or two, I've, I think, done a better job of that. When I do come home stressed, just verbalizing that, I think, helps a lot. And the little bit of coaching that I've done sort of ran with that a little bit with me, and I found that really helpful. And so even when you have those tough days at work, and you come home and you're stressed, you can, you can turn it off, you can talk about it, you can have your little bit of sadness or, or stress, and then you can let it go and be there with your family and enjoy the time that you do have. And Linda, I agree with you. Just turning off the phone and not answering those emails in the middle of the night. It helps when you don't have newborns waking up in the middle of the night <laughs> and you have that tendency to pick up the phone at two in the morning. Just putting the phone down and trying to separate work from home and taking care of yourself. Things like exercise and reading the book, really important. I think too, this came up in the beginning of the conversation, both Linda and Moy, about you guys talked about vulnerability. And I don't think you'll ever be able to have as much vulnerability with colleagues and a mentor as you would with a coach. But when you guys talked about it in the beginning, it just made me think that as we all continue to move forward and work together and talk more about this stuff, hopefully we can all become a little bit more vulnerable with each other and become a little bit more comfortable talking with colleagues and talking with mentors about some of these things without fear of retribution, without fear of not being looked upon as well as you'd like to. And I think, you know, I hope that's something that all of us is as arthroplasty surgeons can do with each other more and moving forward. Awesome. Well, just being mindful of both your time, speaking about wellness and separating work from home life. Peter, I'm not sure if, if there are any more burning questions you want to ask me about or Linda, or if there's anything that, that you two want to cover. I think the one thing I'll just say and mention is we forget to invest in ourselves. And I think one of the deterrents from using a coach is expenses, one, but two is selfishly taking time out of the day to focus on you because you feel like you've been gone all day. You haven't seen your family. You haven't seen your friends. 
So taking, you know, the hour or 30 minutes or whatever it may be with a coach, it almost feels like, you know, how could I be doing this to everybody else around me? And, and what I'll say is how I sort of changed my viewpoint on this is that I'm investing myself so I can be a better person for my family and my colleagues. And so that I could be a happier person and, and really be invested in the day with my patients, my colleagues, my mentees, my family, my kid. And so you just sort of have to change your mentality going into it that this sort of selfish act of taking the time to invest in yourself is really going to better your time at home and your time at work. I love that point. I think to add to that, the best careers and the best life is actually curated. A lot of us think that you'll just kind of fall into it, right? If you repeat what people ahead of you have done, but that's just not the case, right? Like you have to live the best life for you and using all the tools that are available to get you to be able to create the life that you want is just the responsible thing to do. Without coaching, I don't think that I would make the time to really self-reflect or really actually know how to do that, right? Like coaching kind of provided me a lot of practice to become more self-aware, but also to reflect on what I've done, what I planned, what I thought I wanted, right? And I think that if we're not careful as physicians, our tendency is going to be to follow the path of least resistance, which is to just do what you did yesterday, right? Just try to keep up, keep up, keep up. But if you really want to be able to design your life and design your career, you should think about ways to be intentional about that. And coaching is a great way to do that. Fantastic. And I guess just before we finish up, are there any specific resources around coaching that, that either of you may find particularly helpful and that uh, might be applicable for some of our listeners, the one or two listeners we have? <laughs> So there's the International Coaching Federation, which has a lot of resources just on what coaching is. And also that federation certifies coaches. So if you were looking for a coach that was ICF certified, you could find them there. Yeah, in addition to that, I talked to and I reached out to individuals that I really haven't even met in real life, to be honest. Um, but I looked for individuals whose careers I sort of wanted to emulate and you know, just having conversations with them on how they sort of framed their time, effort. And, and I think all of them had a coach. There really wasn't a single person I talked to that didn't have a coach at a different level or two. But giving that information from them word of mouth was really helpful as well, in addition to online sources from Moyabot. Thank you both, Linda and Moyabot, for joining us on this podcast. It's really great conversation. And it's just an honor to have you guys pass on things that have helped you guys. And as women leaders in arthroplasty, things that have helped you guys grow, I know will help other women, other minorities, and hopefully other yeah, members who are looking to, to build their career and, and get reconnected to their purpose and chase the goals that are actually theirs. So thank you guys so much. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.